Hi everyone, my name is Haley. And this is Laura. And welcome to The Body Pod. Well, welcome Stacey. I'm so, so thrilled. This is always, I always put out when I have you on an Instagram, I'll say, send me some questions and then I get inundated, overload pages and pages. So we're gonna see if we can get through hopefully the majority of them. But anyhow, welcome and congrats on the revised version. I finished it over the weekend and it's just fabulous. So I have a lot of questions from the updated version, but also uh, Next Level, which I still feel is just incredible and one of my favorite books ever. So are you ready? We ready? Yep. Yep. Here we go. All right. So to begin, over the last two years, Years. So when I interviewed you two years ago, we I feel like a lot has changed over the last 24 months-ish as far as getting women comfortable in the gym. I feel like the message is getting out there that women need to strength train. Yeah. So that's out there. I'm seeing more females in the gym, at least in the U.S., where I am in Colorado, and it makes me so happy. Um, my question is to start off. I love seeing more women in the gym, but what would you say, like, where are we still getting it wrong? Or where could women still be confused? Like, okay, I need a lift, but what does that look like? And can I do that at home just as well as I can do it in the gym? Yeah, I think part of the confusion also are things like F45. I had a woman this morning at the pool who was like, oh, are you in that CrossFit gym that's right by F45? And I was like, I don't do CrossFit. I broke up with CrossFit. What are you talking about? She goes, oh, well, I joined F45 because I want to strength train. I was like, no, you need to come to our gym because we do three times a week purely strength development, like learning how to lift because people who want to lift heavy need to learn how and what that is. And you can do it at home. You can do it in the gym. And so she was taken aback. Like, well, what about F45? I was like, that doesn't teach you how to lift. And that's not really strength training. You're pushing things around, but you're not really. It's really trying to get women comfortable with the idea of pushing loads, but not having a cardiovascularly taxing workout because most people are so used to being completely burnt out when they leave the gym that they feel like that's a good workout. So I think we're still missing the mark of trying to get women to understand what it actually means to strength train and that it is a very viable workout and it does benefit cardiovascular and metabolic health because there are a lot of people who will go to the gym, they'll do a heavy session and they're like, now I need to go for a 10K run. It's like, no, you don't. Yeah. Yeah. But I do. Endurance. <laughs> yeah. I do enjoy now going into a gym and seeing mainly strong women. Like it's such a great role model for younger people coming in. And it's like, wow, there's two guys and then 20 women. This is fantastic. Yes. I love it. So as far as like strength training, we, I mean, lift heavy shit. That's like the motto. We have to do that. Of course, there is a progression to get people up to that level. But do you feel like, um, I still hear from endurance athletes, obviously I'm in like the endurance <laughs> center of uh, everyone. Everyone is, you know, yeah. an endurance athlete in Boulder. So do you have to lift the same if you are an endurance athlete versus, and I know you talked about this in your book versus just, you know, as we title this training for life. Yeah. Um, the base idea is the same. 
it's just when we talk about endurance athletes, we want to look at their program. Like, what are they training for? So we periodize the strength training. It's still lifting heavy. It's still doing plyometric work, just like training for life. But instead of maybe doing three or four sessions a week when you're getting into more endurance-oriented goal, like six weeks or seven weeks out from a race, then we drop it and we do maintenance. But it's not... You know, we're we're not trying to build in that phase. We're trying to maintain. So you might go down to two days a week. You might use one of them as a potentiation for a hill session or something like that. So it's it's the same, but a little bit different depending on the goal. And I get frustrated when endurance athletes are like, oh, I should really get in the gym and do some work. I'm like, if you want to stay injury free and you want to get stronger, it's not about doing more on the bike and less running. It's about really working through that full range of motion and getting strong in all the weak points and you can do that in the gym does it have to be in the proper gym if you have extra weights at home then you can possibly do it there but ideally we want you to be able to lift loads that usually you can only find in the gym yes and i think that's a good point there's definitely a runway if you're new to weightlifting where you can accomplish enough at home at first but that runway will run out yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, so when we're looking at strength training and we have like, okay, so we have the, the three days that's kind of ideal to minimum is what I would always recommend when we're planning in the cardio and you just did a post on this. So we have like the uh, high intensity interval training. We have the sprint interval training and then we also have the zone two which i know you've been talking a lot about can you talk us through the difference in fibers of what those two cardio options are kind of doing differently so we talk about oxidative and glycolytic fibers. So oxidative are your aerobic, your endurance, your slow twitch. And women, by the nature of being women, and I'm talking like cis biological, we have more of those endurance oxidative fat burning fibers. They're not fast twitch, so they don't produce power. And we have a lot of mitochondrial function or better mitochondrial function than men. And we're really, really good at pulling up free fatty acids and using them and burning them. Yeah. What we don't have a lot of are those glycolytic fast twitch fibers that use um, glucose really quickly. They use ATP, CP cycle, and this is where we're seeing a lot of lactate production. And we are looking at how do we produce lactate to train the brain to use it for better brain health, to be able to clear it so that we can produce power and we can get faster. Mm -hmm. So we need to do that high intensity work to create more use of those glycolytic fibers to get them more um, efficient at being glycolytic and that fast power stuff. Because women are at a disadvantage from that with regards to sex differences in muscle morphology. So this is where we're looking at what is the percentage of high intensity versus slow stuff. If we are a woman that is not training for endurance and we're looking at being time sensitive, don't spend all that time doing all the zone two stuff because we don't need to do that. We need to focus on lifting in the high intensity work. So we need to stimulate more of those glycolytic fibers to produce lactate, to be able to teach the brain to use it, to be able to clear it. And we are going to upregulate the 
transport systems of lactate and free fatty acids by the nature of producing more. Mm -hmm. If we just sit around and do that slow zone two stuff, it's very time intensive and we're not actually instigating a whole lot of change within our body. Yeah. We're just taking the pathways it already has. So would you, do you ever structure out your year where you have, because I know we're both like, we love to ride. So do you have periods of time where you're like, okay, this section of the year, I'm lifting really heavy and I'm following this schedule, but then I also have more endurance, like say during your summer, mm -hmm. do you ever prioritize your year that way if you're not racing anymore? I do because I live in New Zealand and the weather is very variable. So I'm like, you look ahead and you know, winter is going to be very rainy. So instead of being all depressed about not being able to get out and have a block of riding, I look at end of May, June, July, August as being in the gym, getting lots of heavy lifting done, doing lots of plyometric work, doing intervals on, on Zwift, doing some hill runs, hill intervals in the rain. So then when our summer comes and everybody in the country shuts down for three or so weeks yeah. and there's no timelines, you're like, I'm going to go out and I'm just going to have fun on my bike and I'll do some maintenance work in the gym. But even the gyms are like, okay, this is our summer schedule. It's all about maintenance. So it's kind of like following with society. But yeah, if I didn't live in New Zealand and like when I lived in California, it was kind of similar. You knew when the weather was going to crap out. No one really wanted to be doing group rides and that kind of stuff when the weather was pouring with rain. So you just kind of periodize your training according to for me, the seasons, because yeah. I hate being cold and wet. Me too. Yeah. Hence the Raynaud's. And when I saw the Raynaud's on your, in your book, I was like, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So great. Yeah. Uh, this question just came up, and I think this is important because I get asked this a lot. How heavy is heavy? It's relative. So we want people to think about lifting as something they're starting for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. So if someone has never lifted before, I'm not going to tell them you need to go to the gym and take a 45 pound bar and start doing deadlifts and then wax some weight on and do some more. I want people to learn how to move first. It can be two weeks of learning mobility, learning how to move, learning that technique, and then taking that technique and putting it under the bar before you add a load, or it could be three months. Yeah. It takes time to phase into this. And the more you understand technique and how your body moves, the more limit you know your limitations so that you don't go in and injure yourself. If you don't have ankle mobility, you're not going to try, try to do a really deep squat. You're going to put plates under your feet and then maybe do a squat to a box. So you're getting that range of motion you're working that range of motion first before you add load and if someone has been lifting and has a training history of lifting and has taken a break they might be able to get back to heavier loads faster than someone who has not before yeah. so it is relative it's totally relative when we talk about heavy we try to put the parameter around starting with a three by five idea where we go three three to five reps three to five sets around three minutes recovery between. So by that fifth rep, you are failing to be able to lift it well. And once your technique is gone, you call it. So you might only get to three reps in that last set and that's fine. Yes. And I think that's, I know in one of our previous Instagram lives, we talked about, or you mentioned how important it is to just 
try to get like one or two or three good sessions with someone that knows what they're doing. Not exactly. a maybe 20 year old, you know, brand new trainer at Gold's. Maybe it, like look for someone that has a physical therapy background or someone that can really look at those mobility issues. Because at this age too, once we start to have that estrogen decline, I mean, we're more inclined for injuries, right? Yep. Definitely soft tissue and joint injuries. We have more inflammation. They call it um, menopausal osteoarthritis, where there's a massive increase in the symptomology of osteoarthritis around late peri, early postmenopause, because we have joint inflammation, we have less range of motion, we have more stiffness in the joints from lack of estrogen. So when you are feeling that way, you don't really want to go lift heavy. Yeah. And if you're working with a physio or you're working with a Olympic weightlifter who has coaching background, who really knows technique, these are people that can really help say, you know, don't lean forward when you're squatting. Think about sitting upright. Maybe we work on front squats first because that really keeps your chest up. And in, they can give you the different ideas and tweaks so that you aren't hurting your back if you're deadlifting. If you're kettlebell swinging, you're not, you know, being an S or in, you're staying more bamboo and doing the hinge. So lots of different key things that you can implement that's simple that prevents injury. Do you have a certain, I mean, I know for me, I'm training a lot of women in person. And so I see kind of the same mobility issues at this age i mean it's always like there's there's something happening and like the thoracic spine is just not as mobile either rotator cuff issues you know a lot of um knee issues and weak or low back issues i would say is what i what i see the most but if we can just step back and and have that guidance and follow a good program or have a, a good trainer all of those things take out the i guess what makes weightlifting scary and when women are like well i know i don't want to you know i don't want to get injured and there's plenty of women that are lifting well way into their 70s i mean and we see that on social media um you just but that mobility portion and doing the move correctly is definitely i would say prioritize that at the very first, I mean, we all spend money on, you know, X, Y, and Z, but really put that priority there for your health so that you do have this long background yeah. or this long history um, with lifting. Yeah, exactly. That way. The two biggest injuries that we see at late peri, early postmenopause is frozen shoulder and plantar fascia. Those are the two biggest things. If someone has a frozen shoulder on the left side, they're going to probably end up with plantar fascia on the right side because they tend to, to have that diagonal compensation. Yeah. And you see that their frozen shoulder also comes with a really tight upper thoracic, like they can't turn. So working on that thoracic mobility um, really helps prevent lower and upper body injury. Yeah. I mean, so, so necessary to have in a program. Do you yourself do mobility every week or do you feel like you're pretty mobile and then you just have to kind of touch up here every day? Every day. I get up every morning and it's kind of like my quiet time where I have a, a band. I'm doing band assisted hamstring stuff or trying to get more ankle mobility, shoulder mobility, definitely thoracic. Because when I swim, I tend to breathe on one side. I've do, been doing quite a bit of ocean swimming and I was like, oh gosh, the left side super tight got to work on that um and if i don't then my lower back locks up can't do deadlifts i'm walking around i'm like oh i can't move because my back hurts this is yeah. so important yeah oh i 
I love that. Okay, so we talked about that, the programming. I'm going to move on to um, when we start to hit perimenopause. Number one, this was a question I got multiple times. How do you know? And there's no way of knowing, I guess, without a blood test, but like, how would you know if you're kind of entering that perimenopause? Is it more of an age or is it more uh, when you're just starting to feel symptoms? But it's not necessarily age dependent, so it's, it's symptomology, but some people don't have symptoms when they first start either. Because uh, some people might hit perimenopause mid 30s, some people might hit it mid 40s. Um, but what we really start to see is a disruption in menstrual cycle patterning and sleep. Those are kind of the first two things because we're starting to see a discrepancy in our ratio of estrogen progesterone. When we see that, then it does impact our autonomic nervous system. So we become more tired but wired and we aren't sleeping as well. We see a change, like I said, a decrease in our heart rate variability. And people often put it up to, I'm just overly stressed. And if you're thinking about what trend over time is going to create this more stress and they're like, I'm keep doing the same things. Why am I so stressed? I don't get this. It's because you're having these changes in your ratios of estrogen and progesterone. Yes. Okay. So with the sleep, I mean, <laughs> I have terrible sleep. I've had terrible sleep forever. And so I keep coming back to like, the tart cherry juice and like getting, you know, and I know all of the sleep architecture of at least what, what makes good sleep. So no alcohol, you know, X amount of hours before, or, um, you know, getting off the screens and all of those, all of those things. But why does our sleep change? Like, why does it start changing during perimenopause? And does it get better when we're on the other side and we're postmenopause? gets better. Yep, it does. And why does it change? Because of estrogen progesterone fluctuation. So not only does estrogen progesterone have a play on our melatonin and our sympathetic drive. So when we have our natural cycle, you'll see that in about the five days before your period starts, there's lots of sleep disturbance because you have elevation in progesterone and estrogen. And so this increases your core temperature. So you're not able to quite drop into the adequate core temperature to get to sleep and stay asleep. You also have an increase in your sympathetic drive, so you're not able to get into as much parasympathetic activation, which is what you need when you're sleeping. And you're having a disruptance in the amount of melatonin that's being produced. So we're having the change in the ratios all the way across. We're having that kind of effect throughout the month. So when we're looking at how do we mitigate that. There are two main things that we, well, no, actually three main things that we can do. One is our gut microbiome. You really need to pay attention to what you are eating to feed that deep gut bacteria. So lots of fibrous fruit and veg and whole grain. We want to maintain diversity because if we maintain diversity, we produce more serotonin. We have 95% of our serotonin production is in our gut. If we have dysregulation of our gut microbiome, we lose a lot of our serotonin. Uh, and then that feeds forward into this hypersympathetic drive. If we don't have enough serotonin, we're hypersensitized, and then estrogen comes up, hypersensitizes our brain even more, and then estrogen drops, we get into a depression, and it, then it circumnavigates to even more poor sleep. Um, 
And then we also want to think about progesterone because progesterone increases core temperature, but if it's not being produced, we're having temperature dysregulation. So the bottom line is for better sleep at this point, we want to look at having something cold to drink about half an hour or 40 minutes before bed so that we are able to drop our core temperature. And using something like L-theanine that is a known non-protein amino acid that increases that parasympathetic activity of the brain so that you can actually kind of take a pause and your body kind of decompresses as if you had low estrogen and progesterone. Oh, I'm trying this tonight <laughs> and I'm going to report in two weeks because I need some serious help. And I feel like that's the first kind of symptom uh, other than brain fog. I'm blaming that on booking the wrong tickets to the wrong places. I'm just blaming all the errors on perimenopause. Yeah, of course. But those are, that's what we do. Those are like the two big ones that I feel like I'm noticing now. I'm 46 and a half. So that's kind of like... I'm sure I'm falling into that window if I if I'm not already there. Yeah. Um, do how do you feel about alcohol? Do you feel like there's a place for it if we time it earlier on in the day, yeah. or do you just feel like when we hit this perimenopause menopause that like there's a place for it, right? Yeah, definitely. I um, was in a conversation earlier, and I was like, as I explain all this stuff, people might think that I'm like the diet witch, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. But no, I follow the 80-20 uh, rule, where 80% you're spot on, 20% yeah. is life, right? I don't want people to say, oh, I can't have any booze, I can't have any dark chocolate. It is timing. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have mm -hmm. a big glass of port and a half a block of dark chocolate if you want to sleep well, because you know you're just not going to sleep well. If you want to have that, have it earlier in the day or smaller portions. Mm -hmm. Um, but then if you're really, really struggling, then bring it down to a, a 90, 10, where you're very selective in the times that you're drinking and the reason why, mm -hmm. um, instead of just coming home from work and saying, oh, I always have a glass of wine while I'm making dinner and then another glass of wine with dinner. Take a pause and say, okay, well, how is my sleep? Maybe I should take one of those out. Maybe I should take both of those out for a week and see how I sleep and then see how that affects it. So you're doing a little bit of biohacking, but it's not hands-off. It's just really trying to find how it works for you in your body, in your life. Yeah. That's fascinating. So let's go back to, well, let's go to the biohacking because that was a huge chapter that was new in the revised version of Roar. I think some women probably don't even know what biohacking is. So can we get in there of what exactly that is and some of the different options that maybe you use? Yeah. We say biohacking is when you're looking at the latest tools of science and you want to see how it works for you. So you're doing kind of a self-experiment. Uh, so like the wine thing I just said, where you're, you know, one week of not having wine with dinner or before dinner and see how you sleep mm -hmm. and you're tracking how you slept that week versus how you normally sleep that's biohacking so then you can make informed decisions on how you're implementing change based on real data not because someone said something or you assume it might be true you're actually finding how your body is responding to something i mean this is why we see things like continuous glucose monitors because people are so afraid of bringing their blood sugar up after a certain food or something like that. And we know there's not a lot of data out there for healthy individuals who are active. 
it is something that you can use to see over time and see trends, but it's not something you can make an absolute decision based on one day. You have to see how your body responds over time, and this helps you. Um, so that's what biohacking is. It's the scientific method for yeah. one. Ah. So if we go back to the microbiome, which I think is fascinating because it's still relatively new mm. in relation to everything else that we know. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to kind of biohack. Is it hard to biohack with the gut microbiome at first? Because it changes every day depending on what you yeah. eat, right? Yeah. It, and this is something where you can also see trends over time. Uh, there are these different kits that you can buy right now, and it's just a spot check, really. And you'll have these people who are like, let's um, do a fecal analysis and see what your gut's doing, and then we'll prescribe you certain anti or probiotics to change your gut microbiome. And that's not appropriate. Yeah. When we're talking about doing some biohacking and trying to change gut microbiome, it's yes, you can do a sample and see you know, what your general strains are and if you tend to have more of the strain that's obesogenic, well, then you know you need to eat more deep fibrous fruit and veg. And over the course of two to three weeks, you're going to have a change in that gut microbiome because it's going to respond. You're going to grow more of the bacteria that eats those complex fibers. And that's the kind that we want because it promotes lean mass development. So it's this is kind of the problem where we see marketing is stronger than science because people like microbiota and all these others like, yeah, test your, your gut microbiome and then have this, 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 this to instigate change and have everything that you want. But that's not taking into account that if you live with someone who's sick, you're going to have more of their bacteria around. If you share a toothbrush holder, then you're going to have bacteria from, you know, there's so many different things in your environment that's also going to affect your gut. So it's just understanding trends and understanding that if you're feeling a certain way and you are curious about gut microbiome, then let's read up a little bit and really work on increasing that food for the deep gut and instigate change that way. I am I'm like looking forward to what, what comes out over the next decade on this because I feel like it's just kind of getting started over the last yeah. short little while. Yeah. So. Exciting and stuff. there are sex differences, right? We know there are sex differences, and that has to do with hormones like testosterone in men versus estrogen and progesterone in women. And we see sex differences in the diversity. We see a decrease in the diversity and a, a reduction in the sex differences as we hit menopause. But what does that mean? No one's really sure yet because it hasn't been out long enough to understand. Yeah. Oh, okay. So moving on to nutrition, I feel like, again, everyone's kind of getting the message, which is amazing about increasing the protein. So we know that's kind of the star macronutrient. And, you know, although I feel like the majority of women, at least that I see are still under eating protein by a large amount, I think everyone's kind of like, okay, okay, got it. I need to have protein. But what does that look like from someone that's maybe premenopausal to postmenopausal? Do those numbers change? They do. 
because we become more anabolically resistant to both food and exercise as we get older. And it is very apparent in perimenopause that we are becoming more anabolically resistant. And I say that because someone will be doing the same kind of training that they've been doing. And two years ago, they're having great results. And now they're like, what's happening? Nothing is happening. I can't put on lean mass. I'm losing it. I'm putting on belly fat. And unfortunately, people tend to eat less instead of eating more and they eat less of the wrong things as well. So as we get older into perimenopause, really putting a precedence on protein. And what does that look like? We're talking, you know, palm size portion of lean protein at each meal, half palm size at each snack. That's just like your baseline. And then you tweak it for what kind of training you're doing, making sure you're getting at least 40 grams post-training. If you're doing resistance training, you can kind of split it, have 15 before and 25 after. And so that's how you're individualizing it. When you're premenopausal, you can get by with the palm size in half, and then it's 30 to 35 grams post-training, not the 40. So you still need an eye to increasing that protein, but you have a little bit more leeway when you're younger because you still have estrogen that's working for you to stimulate muscle mass production. Okay, so with the recent study that came out about muscle protein synthesis and there, the protein amount not really having a cap per um, I guess meal like that was so I was like what I know this is what we <laughs> so cool so what do you like how much protein do we need like I know you say 30 30 to 40 grams but for someone that's like oh well, I'm just gonna have 10 or 15 like I just can't stomach that much or, or maybe just not bought into it do we even turn on what do we need to turn on muscle protein synthesis like what's the minimum dose we see in women it's around three grams of leucine and that is about 30 grams of whey protein okay so it's really i mean this is why they did a study that came out about two months ago looking at the 20 the 30 the 60 gram mark in premenopausal women 20 didn't do much it had some muscle protein synthesis activity but it didn't maximize it and it faded off rather quickly 30 and 60 there was no difference but 30 was a sweet spot where you really saw an instigation of muscle protein synthesis and it held for up to 24 hours so did the 60 gram but there wasn't a significant difference between the 30 and the 60 so they're like, yeah, go with 30. It's fine. And then the 100 gram one wasn't necessarily about um, a top cap. It was how long can we keep that 24? You know, what is a maximum dose? They couldn't find the maximum dose to instigate the 24 hour muscle protein synthesis. We know that 30 is the bare minimum, but what's the maximum? Don't know yet. So fascinating. So the, the leucine is really the important amino acid that we need to make sure we're getting because I know that's another big question is you know the plant versus the whey protein and kind of that debate uh, how that has evolved over the last couple of years but I think that's where a lot of uh, women may be missing some of that full protein development in a meal it's the leucine right that we need to be paying attention to it is a leucine. You also need all the other essential amino acids with it. So this is like you want to look at the quality of the protein. So we look at pea protein isolate. It doesn't have as much leucine per volume and weight as whey protein. It's just on the cusp. So if you mix that pea protein with hemp, then you're going to get everything that's 
it's very similar to whey protein and meet that leucine. If you're vegan and you're like, oh, I don't eat meat, how am I going to get it all? It's like, well, if you look at your plate, let's put in some nuts and some seeds and some sprout sprouted grains and some um, green peas and edamame. Just having a whole mix of different types of protein sources is going to get you to that level that you need in that meal. The only caveat is a lot of times we see plant-based and vegans getting too full before they get adequate protein. And if that's the case, then we see a decrease in lean mass instead of an increase in lean mass when they are working out in the gym. So it's, it's something to be very cognizant of. Yes, absolutely. Let's move on to recovery with the protein. So we know that we recover different than men. What mm -hmm. does that window look like when we've done a hard strength training session or maybe a really hard um, hit interval session? So we call it the acute recovery window. Uh, where we don't necessarily need insulin to pull carbohydrate or glucose in. So for women, if we're having that protein with a little bit of carbohydrate, that window extends to about three hours. If we don't, it's 40 minutes. So it's really important if you're trying to get adequate reparation to have that hit of protein with a little bit of carbohydrate. And that extends that whole window so that if you're having your like protein shake or you're having your yogurt with um, some banana right afterwards, you're getting that essential nutrient in and then you can have your real meal and you're not like jamming it in right away. So it gives you a little bit of a, of a pause to be able to still recover and repair once you get out of the shower and you're getting into your day. And if you're pressed for time, like I didn't have time to eat and it's two hours later, you're still in a recovery window. Okay. Oh, that's so good to know. So moving on to carbohydrates, because yes. we know that this kind of changes and we have the low carb craze and then, what is your recommendation for carbohydrates depending on your workout? And then also, do we need to change that when we are post-menopause? Does that number change? When we're looking at carbohydrate, we see a lot of women who get into low carbohydrate availability because they're just not eating enough carbohydrate. And this ends up being very... does that mean? That means that if you wake up first thing in the morning, you need to have some carbon protein before you work out. It can be half a banana and a couple of tablespoons of yogurt. It can be protein fortified coffee with some sweetened alternative milk or just normal milk. So you're having some carb from that. And then you're recovering well. And mm -hmm. um, when we're looking at training, if we're doing a strength training day, like a heavy resistance training day, we're saying around four grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. So what I can't do that. I haven't done the metric to imperial conversion before this. So I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> no, I'm like, wait, what is this? <laughs> Figure it out yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the new book. I did all the conversions in the new book. Yes. And then if we're doing like a heavy uh, endurance day, so we go for a three-hour ride and we come back and we have the rest of our life to deal with, we're looking at six to seven grams per kilogram of body weight. And people are like, whoa, that's a lot. So what's that? 360 to 420 grams of carbohydrate if you're around 130 pounds. So people are like, that's a lot. And 
when we are younger, we can get away with more simple carbohydrate. So if you want to have Cap'n Crunch before you go out, I'm not hugely adverse to it, but you know, it's not going to be as damaging as if you were in your late fifties and having Cap'n Crunch before you go out. Yeah. Um, we want to make sure that our carbohydrates have a little bit more fiber in them when we get older, especially at meals, but in and around training, you can get by with more simple type carbohydrates. Yes. So your white bread, your white bread toast, sweet, have that before or after training, but that's the only time. Yeah. Okay. So I could never be low carb ever. I think I tried it years ago for like two days. <laughs> like, I didn't even cut out for last two days. I think the only time I've done it is when I've been like sick and I can't eat. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, awful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Okay, so then that really talks about what how you feel about keto. Oh yeah. I mean, if someone doesn't need to cut out a food group, why would you? You don't. But the other thing about keto is we know how important the gut microbiome is, especially for overall health, right? And we see that we need really good diversity in that gut microbiome for hormonal health because the gut bugs deconjugate our hormones and send them back out in circulation. We see that it's important for serotonin production. We see that it's important for vitamin expression, so many things. If you're eating keto, you are not feeding the gut bugs at all because you're not having a high capacity of fruit and veg because they're too high in carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. You're having a high density of fat and you're creating a, a dysregulation of the gut microbiome and really decreasing that diversity. So when we look at the longer term implications of keto, we're seeing more and more longitudinal data coming out showing lots of cardiovascular risk factors and metabolic disorder because of the lack of diversity in the gut. Not per se of the fat content that you're eating in the food, but because of the effect of that diet on the gut microbiome. Yeah. Well, and then fiber, I mean, that's that's a big issue as well. I don't know, I mean, the again, the majority of women that I see aren't hitting fiber either. No, and that's the problem, yeah. Because we're afraid of carbohydrate. We get too full if we eat something that has fiber in it. And it it is a step over time where for me, if I'm trying to increase people's total calorie intake, because I get so many emails a day from women who are like, I'm doing all the right things. I'm doing the heavy lifting. I'm doing the sit in the hit. Uh, I'm getting better sleep. I started menopause hormone therapy. I'm eating 1500 calories a day, but I'm putting on body fat and losing lean mass. It's like, you are not eating enough. We need you to be eating 2,500 calories a day and freak out. So how do we increase that? We slowly increase around training, but then we increase the amount of fruit and veg at mealtimes. Mm -hmm. One, it increases fiber. Two, it increases calories, but not the kind that's going to make you feel all gross and heavy. Yeah. It's going to increase water content. It's just a way of slowly increasing calorie content. And then we start putting more calorie-dense foods in. So get the fiber as you're increasing calories. And then once you get the fiber in, then you start putting more nutrient-dense stuff in there. Like, let's put in some more olive oil on your salad. Let's put in some more seeds and nuts. So we start looking at that kind of density to increase calories. Yeah. And I feel like you have discussed this and said the answer to this 9 million times, but somehow it still gets on <laughs> the list by a lot of people. So intermittent fasting. Yes. 
Let's go there. Let's get in there. Okay. Um, well, I'll define it. So if we talk about intermittent fasting versus time-restricted eating, and I made the errors earlier by not really identifying that I don't like intermittent fasting. The research is not supportive for intermittent fasting. Now it's coming out from men or women. So what is intermittent fasting? That means these people who are not eating till noon, they might have a four-hour eating window, they might have a 16-hour time when they're not eating, they uh, might restrict for three or four days and then they have a couple of binge days. That is dysregulation of our chronobiology. We see research, population research coming out showing that those people who are both men and women not breaking their fast till noon or after end up with more obesogenic outcomes. So they're not getting the benefit of what they say is a fast. But for people who are time-restricted eating. So this is not eating after dinner and then eating breakfast by eight o'clock. Wow. You are garnering all of those health benefits and that is fine. We sleep better. We have energy during the day when we're eating for when our body needs it. And then all the things that we talk about in increasing telomere length, you know, better sleep, better sympathetic control happens because you're not digesting while you're sleeping. Yeah. So time-restricted eating is fine because you're feeding during the day when your body needs it. You're not doing fasted training. You're recovering well. You're stopping eating before bed so you get better sleep. Great. Intermittent fasting where you're dysregulating your food intake and dysregulating chronobiology, not a fan. It's not good for women and it's now coming out not good for men either. I mean, and this, the, if we don't eat and we exercise, we're going into that daily low energy availability, like just from the start of that, because we're already yeah. fasting overnight. And I often see women who will start a program, right? And I was really happy to see this in a documentary that I watched on Netflix the other night that I'll tell you in a minute. But I see women who start a program and they start putting in more fruit and veg, but there's not a lot of cardio work in the program. So they feel fuller because they're putting in more fruit and veg. They want to feel that thing, so they cut back on that. And then they feel like they're not getting a really good workout because they're putting um, time more in resistance training than cardio. So they add a little cardio in and then they come back for a DEXA six to eight weeks later and their weight has changed that much, but they've lost a significant amount of lean mass and put on body fat. And like, what happened? You weren't eating enough and you were doing too much cardio work and people will start to freak out. It's like, so when you're doing fasted training, you're doing the same thing. You are getting into a state where you're burning through your lean mass and you're going to the gym, you're working out, but you, all the effort you're putting in is just going to fuel what you're doing. It's not going to build lean mass and create change. And the documentary was on the twin study that Christopher Gardner did. And so he took identical twins who were living close to each other to try to eliminate all the confounding variables and put one on a clean omnivore diet mm -hmm. and one on plant-based with no animal products and looked at the, the change. And there were two 22-year-old guys who were really stuck into the program and doing their resistance training and everything, and then two older Filipino women. Both groups, or both groups of twins, lost lean mass and put on body fat because they weren't eating enough. Yeah. The boys were 
healthy enough because there just wasn't enough food for them being 22 resistance training. Mm -hmm. The Filipino women weren't eating enough because they felt too full and put in cardio instead of just you know doing the resistance training and eating the food that was supplied. So really super important yes. to eat protein and to eat when your body is active. Oh, I hope people like re-listen to that section. <laughs> and, watch this, and watch the first and the last episode of the documentary. Don't watch the middle ones because there is an agenda behind it to push plant-based eating. But for the real science, watch the first one that tells and explains the study and then watch the last one that tells and explains the results okay done okay i'm gonna ask uh, a controversial question we're just going there tonight yep <laughs> so do you have an opinion i don't know what it's like in new zealand but in the usa there are pockets of women taking Ozempic that don't need to take it and are losing a huge amount of lean body. They're losing weight. And so a lot of people are super stoked about that. But I'm like, but you're lo that will take you months and months in a gym to get back that lean mass. Yes. Yes. I was on a conversation earlier and someone was trying not to say Ozempic. I'm like, just Put it out there. Say it was in heck. We have women who feel they need to lose 10 to 20 pounds that they've gained over menopause. So they take a Zimpec and it comes off. It's a semi-glutide. So we look at what a semi-glutide does. It slows the rate of digestion so you feel fuller longer and it gives you more um, glucose control. When we look at a high protein diet in resistance training, you get to have better glucose control because you build more muscle mass and as you're doing resistance training, you are able to have more homeostatic control because your muscles are learning how to use that glucose instead of leave it out there in circulation. Yeah. And the protein works like a semi-glutide. It is slower to digest. It gives you satiation. Um, it really helps with that um, lean mass development, which we know becomes more metabolically active. So you end up losing weight. and. Uh, you, you and I have talked about that study that Bill Campbell posted about the sedentary, normal weight, but obese women who yeah. just increase their protein intake. I mean, that's telling. High protein, super important for lean mass and appetite. It helps regulate appetite, which is what Ozempic does. So I tell women, look, you need to put in different work that, yes, it is going to be hard. We have to look at changing the gut. We have to look at doing the proper kind of resistance training. Yeah. We have to look at putting in some plyo or sprint interval to have some crosstalk to get rid of that visceral fat. Yeah. But all of that is going to make you have better body composition and be healthier than if you are to do injections of a Zimpec. Because a Zimpec, yes, you lose a shit ton of weight. Sorry for swearing, but whatever. <laughs> But it is primarily lean mass because that's the first thing that goes when you are muting your appetite and not eating enough. The first thing that goes is metabolically active tissue, and that is your lean mass. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so scary because to kind of talk about, we've talked about this multiple times too, women that are afraid of lifting to get bulky I want to be like come and look at any of my 50 year old women in the gym that are killing it and they you know 
they're lifting heavy. They're leaving a session and it's not fun all the time. And we barely squeak out. Like if we do another deficit, it's like, oh, we got, you know, we're happy. Like we gained a half of a pound of muscle or, you know, a pound of yeah. X amount of time, but it, it will take months to get that back. And that's, I think the message that I just want people to think like, there's no quick fix. Mm-hmm. It was like mm-hmm. Fan in the nineties. There's, there's no yeah. quick fix to just eating right and lear- educating yourself about what the science says from people like you and putting that into place. It, it's sure. It's not as easy, but I mean, it's not getting you anywhere. It's sending you back. Right. And I feel for those people who need it because they are diabetic and they need the drug and can't get it because it can't be produced fast enough because some influencer used it and was like, look, I lost all this weight. Now people who don't need it for diabetes trying to use it to lose weight. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I get very frustrated and upset. Yeah. And I think that stems from having allergies and not being able to get EpiPens and knowing that it's a life or death situation. Yeah. And it's the same with those insects for insulin control. Like some people need it as a life or death situation. Okay. That wasn't even on my list, but it just came out. So we cared. Yeah. <laughs> if we can talk about, I know you just touched on it, visceral fat. So that's the number one thing that women come in and they're like, what the heck? Yeah. I haven't changed anything. I'm eating the same, you know, I'm working out pretty much the same. Like what, what, how do we get rid of that? Is it diet? Is it fitness? Is it a combination of both? It's a combination. Okay. So first and foremost, it's the type of exercise we're doing. Because when we start to have that change in our estrogen progesterone ratios, there is a, a increased feedback mechanism for putting on that visceral fat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is fat in around all the organs. And it has somewhat to do with the sympathetic drive that we're under the tired but wired and can't get into parasympathetic. What we need to do is that super high intensity work. We need that sprint interval training. We need that plyometric training. Because it is such a, ex- a strong external stress, it increases the amount of extra kinds that are being produced. So those are our molecules of feedback from the skeletal muscle to everywhere else. We have these extra kinds that come out and says, that was a really hard session. We need to make sure that the muscles can refuel and we don't want to carry around extra weight because we have to do stuff. Then it tells the visceral fat to go away. The other issue that we're seeing and this might transfer into one of your later questions on menopause hormone therapy. We're seeing that women think more estrogen is better. So we'll see women who are being put on 50, maybe 100 microgram patches, and then your standard dose of progestin, which is your 100 milligrams at night. But for women who have had a lower level of estrogen throughout their life, so they've been regularly cycling, but they've been on the low end of normal, we're seeing that those who are using 50 to 100 tend to put on more visceral fat rapidly Mm -hmm. until they drop down to around 25. And then when they drop down to that 25, it comes back down. And it is because now all of a sudden they're getting a higher dose of circulating estrogen than what their bodies are really used to, which causes a hyperplasia. So when I have women who are like, I'm doing all the right things, and I'm eating enough, and I started menopause hormone therapy, but now all of a sudden I have this extra tummy fat, what's going on? 
I ask them about their hormonal history, what dosing they're on, because this conversation of more is better is not appropriate. And the conversation of everyone needs the same amount of dose is not appropriate. So if you are having those issues, you need to go talk to your physician about dosing. Maybe you need to go down instead of up. So two questions. One question was pretty much what you just said. If I'm doing everything right, uh, strength training, I'm doing HIT, I'm doing plyo, I'm you know eating really well. Like I, I, I have that kind of nailed, nailed down, but I'm still not really is getting the results that I want. Do you think that it's time to go in and maybe check the hormones, or do you have any advice on that? <laughs> The thing about hormones is you have to see the trend over time. You can't just go in for a spot check. Okay. Um, so if you're doing trends over time, then you can have the availability. If you're going in and saying, I'm doing all the right things and I'm still putting on body fat, mm -hmm. you know, you have to really look, are you doing nutrient timing appropriately? Are you getting enough protein? Are you following the chronobiological aspect where you're eating well throughout the day? You don't have these great catabolic states. Mm -hmm. If you're saying yes to all of these things and you've gone the 90-10 rule where 90% you're doing everything and then that 10% is about life, then we go and say, okay, well, maybe we do need to consider looking at ashwagandha or SSRI or using some menopause hormone therapy to drop that sympathetic drive. Yeah. Because if we can't get out of that sympathetic, tired, but wired drive, then we're not going to be able to lose that extra belly fat. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for answering that. This question came through. I thought it was kind of fascinating that this lady is a physician in ICU, shift worker, seven days on, seven days off. She's like, my cortisol is off the charts. You know, any advice on exercise timing during that week that she's on versus the week that she would be off? Yeah. So if we're looking at doing night shifts, right? Is that what she's saying? Mm -hmm. She's doing yep. night shifts. Um, we want to really significantly drop volume and moderate intensity. So that week that you are training, and, and working night shifts, it's all about resistance training and maybe warming up with some plyos because we know that with the night shift, you are increasing cortisol. We are having a change in our chronobiology. Um, we can see we can reset some of the issues that are pro uh, that are problematic. If when you get off shift and you're coming home to sleep, use rhodiola and ashwagandha and L-theanine, because those together are going to drop that cortisol and increase parasympathetic drive pretty quickly so that you can get four to five hours of really good quality sleep, which again helps drop cortisol. Because if we're doing that moderate intensity stuff or we're doing a HIT class, we're driving that cortisol up already and we don't have a, a response to drop it. If we're doing resistance training or we're even doing uh, metabolic conditioning where you're doing an EMOM, one, two, three minutes on, one minute rest, and you're doing four rounds of that, that's a high enough intensity that you're going to have a, a response of more growth hormone, more testosterone, which drops cortisol. So it's just the eye of quality, not quantity during that week, making sure you hit that ashwagandha, rhodiola, and L-theanine when you get off shift. Is the rhodiola, this was actually another question, better pre-workout in the morning or does it matter when you're taking it? Depends on why you're using it. Okay. So if we're, I, I tend to use it in the evening to help like just bring everything down. Um, 
because I find that that's what rhodiola does to me. But some people find that rhodiola really like brings them alert. Yeah. So that's when you take it in the morning. So you have to figure out what mechanism your body's responding to with regards to taking the rhodiola. Okay. Two last questions that we have time for. How do you feel about electrolytes daily with just regular exercise outside of like endurance, multiple hours of cycling, biking, whatever? Save your money, salt your food, put a little salt in your water for your, your workout, but you don't need to buy extra electrolytes, especially if you are eating some of the foods from a standard American diet, you're using some salt, you have pumpkin seeds, like you're going to get what you need. Um, the electrolyte hype is all from sports marketing for the most part, rather than a physiological need. Okay. And then for cyclists, because I know there's, there's a lot of cyclists that I talk to here that are like, well, my legs are strong, I cycle, so I don't really need to strength train. Now I hear that all the time. It's like, well, yes, but we talk about injury prevention and we also want to talk about increasing our power. Even if you're doing a low gear hill work and you're producing power, you end up with muscular fatigue. You want to be able to get up that hill again and again and again without that muscular fatigue. If you're in the gym lifting heavier loads through a squat or single leg lunges or RDLs, you're developing a full component for strength, not just this one repetition mo movement. And it helps alleviate injury. And in the winter, especially if you're in Boulder with snow and you can't ride, if you're doing specific work in the gym and then do a spin on the rollers afterwards, you're transferring that strength to your pedal strip, which will then feed forward to much better performance when you can get back out on the road. Yes. Oh, okay. And we, we need that, the bone, I mean, we're not getting that bone density on the bike. No. To have that from strength training. Absolutely. Yeah. Tendons, ligaments, bones also all benefit. Neural pathways, really important. Doing strength training for that neural component, mm -hmm. really we're seeing helps attenuate the development of Alzheimer's and dementia. So we think about, okay, yeah, I'm cycling, I'm strong now, but what about 10 years? What about 15 years from now? You want that neural pathway, that neural development. Yes. Oh my goodness. Okay. We're out of time. I, I went over last time and then people are like, save it. And I don't know what happened. So we're going to wrap this up. If I didn't get to your questions, we can answer them on a podcast in a few weeks. We'll say that. Yes. <laughs> we can. Stacey, thank you so much for your time. I just adore you and everyone else adores you. And we appreciate you so much for everything that you do. So look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Travel safely and come right. to summer. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating and sharing the body pod with your friends. Until next time.